Thank you. Well, um, good morning, everyone. It's, it's an honor and a privilege to be sharing with you this morning. I want to draw your attention really quickly before we jump in the text to what's right behind me. This is not our normal stage design. This is what's set up for something we call Adventure Week, uh, which is um, something that our children's ministry puts on. And, and the reason why I talk about this is because uh, I want to humbly come before you and ask as a church family that you would commit to praying for our children and student ministries this summer. We have an unbelievable amount of time that we get with our students during summer to do trips and activities and spend time with them in a way that just we don't get during the school year. And so we understand that we don't want, we don't want to do anything without God's blessing, but we also want you to commit to praying for us. So if you would, as you think about it, some, how many of you guys are volunteering next week during Adventure Week? Anyone? Oh, right in the back. I see you. Oh, oh, and there too. That's cool. So there's like three or four people here at least. Um, and some others. Uh, it's, a, it's a big thing. We have like a thousand kids who are coming here tomorrow to come here for Adventure Week. Um, but on top of that, we have a crew of high school students who will serve the entire week and then pack everything up and go to Utah to bring the same camp over there um, for a church that doesn't have the need, the, the resources to really do it themselves. We also have our junior high ministry, which uh, I'm helping lead a trip that we leave tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. We go to Mammoth Mountain for a week of camping, spending some time looking at Psalm 23. Uh, and then we have a crew that goes to San Francisco, some freshmen and, and sophomores in our high school ministry. And then you saw the Ukraine team that was leaving. They leave Monday, Tuesday? I think they leave Tuesday. And then our high school team, which is currently there, gets back Wednesday. And so we'd ask that you guys would be praying for them as they wrap up their trip, but also that you'd be praying for our students that God would work through them, but God would also shape them and develop them because we want to see them grow. We want to see, catch, want to see them catch hold of what God is doing and, and to impact other people's lives for that. So if you walk away with nothing else, please, please, please pray for our students. We need it, um, and we appreciate your prayers. Uh, this morning, as you probably guessed, well, actually, it's closer to afternoon. This afternoon, as you probably guessed, we're in Exodus chapter 5, because my lovely wife read all of chapter 5. That was awesome. I now know that she can read, which is cool. It's encouraging for me. It's encouraging for me, and um, we're in Exodus chapter 5. Uh, I want to bring, bring your attention to Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. We'll read that again. I know you've already heard it, but... It's good to read again. Exodus chapter five, verse one says, afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. I want to pause right there because the question that Pharaoh is asking isn't necessarily one in which he's saying, I've never heard of this God before. What he's asking and what he's saying is, who is this God and what is he like? It's not a unique question. It's actually a very similar question that Moses asked earlier on in the text. Moses in chapter three asked God, who are you? You're going to send me to do this stuff, but who should I tell them is sending me? And so we're picking up in the story of Moses we see that Moses was uniquely preserved among the people, and then God called him after he was exiled in this land to go and bring back the people, go to the people and relieve them from their pain. And God calls Moses and he tells him everything that he's going to do with them. But Moses asks this question, it's the same question that Pharaoh asked him, he says, who is this God? And God in this, in chapter three, reveals himself very uniquely. He gives 
Moses a name. He says, this is the name that you're going to call me. And it's important that we remember the name because names in this time, in this kind of time period are really significant. Um, Not really like they are now. Now, some people have given their kids names that mean something or kids names that they have some some special reason. Um, But for the most part, there are probably a lot of people whose names are similar to mine in which they don't mean a whole lot. So my name, my full name is Russell Cody Stavert. I go by my middle name. Um, You can call me Russell. I give you that permission. We're family here. That's fine. I'll answer. Um, so, does anyone know what Russell means? Anybody? No? Nobody knows what Russell means. We had one person in the last service. It means red or like redheaded. Right? And I, when I was a baby, I had red hair and I, I have strawberry ish blonde hair right now. So, Russell means redheaded. So, so, that sort of gives you an idea of who I am. But, does anyone know what Cody means? I'd be so surprised if someone could tell me what Cody means. People are like frantically Googling it, like, oh, please call me. Uh, It means cushion or chair. So my name means red chair. My mom was here in the service earlier, and that was fun to watch her crack up. And she told me later there was more significance to my name, which I kind of believe her. Um, But my name name means red chair. It doesn't mean a whole lot. Um, There is some other significance, but... When God reveals his name to Moses, he's not just giving this random throwaway name. He's communicating who, what he's like to Moses. And so when Pharaoh and Moses ask, who is this God? We see that Exodus is all about revealing who God is. Grand scheme of the story of Exodus, it's about revealing who God is to the people and God is showing them what he is like. So let's turn to, really quickly to Exodus chapter 3. And we'll read that, this, this, this exchange. And we read this a couple weeks ago, but it's, it's always good to go back and be reminded. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And then God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel that I am sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to to be remembered throughout all generations. So previously in the biblical story, in Genesis, God had revealed himself as God Almighty. And then to subsequent generations, as we read there, he was known as the God of your forefathers, or the God of Abraham, or Isaac, or Jacob. This is how God was known. And so when God comes up to Moses, he says, this is how you've known me, and I'm going to tell you more about myself, and this is my name, and it's I am, which is kind of a weird thing as you first read it, but this is the first time that God uniquely identifies himself in a way that reveals his character. Now, Almighty is there, but there are not really many other gods that proclaim to say their name in the way that God says his. He says, my name is I am, and there are a lot of Lots of time we could spend understanding what are the nuances that God would say his name is I am, and there's, there's a ton there, but generally speaking, the idea is that God is telling Moses that he is unchanging. The name kind of generally communicates this idea that some, one of the attributes of God is that he is unchanging. And it's really unique because in this context, he's saying, I'm unchanging, and then he also promises to rescue his people. In a sense, it's like he's saying, hey, You need to know that I don't change, and you need to know that what I say I will do, I will do, because I don't change. Incredibly significant to understand as we get into Exodus 5. So God has a name. His name is I am, which is fun to say, but it means he's unchanging, and it means that what he says he will do, he will do. 
And it's interesting as we come to Exodus 5 that that very identity of God is questioned by the people. And that is the story of Exodus 5. We'll, we'll kind of walk through this as we go through. So the story of Exodus 5 is um, built up in, in four. So we get an idea of what's going on. There's this build up to what's about to happen. And we read this in Exodus 4, 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went and met him in the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all of the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads in worship. If you're Moses in this situation, everything is happening according to what God has already told him is going to happen. It's actually quite exciting if you're Moses because one, he's been exiled. He's been living apart from his people and he comes back and he meets his brother and his brother is excited to see him and his brother is on board with what God said he was going to do. And then they go and they're given an audience with the leadership of Israel. All of the elders meet Moses and Aaron and then they're on board with what God said he was gonna do through Moses. And so if you're Moses, you're getting really excited because, okay, it seems like God has said what he's going to do and it's already looking like this is happening. God is turning out to be the God he said he was. All the things he said are gonna happen are gonna happen. And we read that first verse, that first two verses like we did in chapter, chapter five of verse two, we see that what God said is still happening. God said that Pharaoh's gonna say no. And Pharaoh says no. And, and if you're Moses in a situation, you're like, okay, cool. Like God is still who he says he is. I did all these things that he asked me to do and it's working out really well. There's some degree of success that Moses is experiencing in this story. Um, but what happens next happens down in, in, chapter, in verse five. It says, and Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them and you shall by no means reduce it for they're idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God and let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to the lying words. So Moses, this is not something that God told him was going to happen. Everything up to this point, God said, this is going to happen and this is different. Now this part, I think, as I read kind of like a cursory reading, we sometimes gloss over and we need to understand a little bit of the significance and why this might weigh so heavily on Moses, as we'll see later in chapter five. So um, when I was in college, I worked at In-N-Out for six months. Uh, how many of you guys have ever been to In-N-Out or eaten at In-N-Out, my show of hands? Yeah, so pretty much most all of you. It's amazing. It's a wonderful place. Uh, I worked there. I lasted six months, and it's not because working for In-N-Out's bad. It's just I don't think I had it cut out to work there. So what I didn't understand when I started working there is that there are people that work in like the, the white pants and white shirts and they cook all the food and they clean everything up. There are those people. And then before the store opens from 5 a.m. to 10.30, there are a crew of people who wear blue clothes and they're janitors and they clean everything. And so I worked at In-N-Out as a janitor for six months. I did not know that that was what I was signing up for when, I, when they said, cool, you've got the job because I showed up and they're like, be here at 5 a.m. I'm like, 
that's weird. I didn't know you served burgers that early. So I get there and they're telling me, okay, cool. You're going to be one of our maintenance crew, one of our cleanup crew. And uh, the job was intense. Like if you ever go to In-N-Out, if you go there this afternoon, you should be glad that they take such care and effort into cleaning everything. One of their like standards is quality, friendliness, and cleanliness is like their third one. And they like, they meet that. The people that are there in the morning from like, there's like three or four of them, they literally clean the entire store. I literally clean every inch. It's store 77 on Harbor and Orange Thorpe. That's the one I clean. I like know that store intimately. I know the bathrooms too well. I, uh, I've cleaned that store a ton. And they do like an amazing job. So they literally clean the driveways. Like I had a scrub brush and for an hour in the morning, I would just scrub the driveways clean with like soapy water. And then I would take this like vacuum Zamboni and vacuum up all the soapy water. Like the level of cleanliness they go to in and out is unbelievable. Um, but one of the jobs that I had to do there was I had to clean all of these mats that the cooks stood on. And so there's about 20 of them. And if you can imagine, if you've ever looked and peeked past when people are grilling, they like scrape the grill and it's supposed to go into this trough, but more often than not, it just falls down on these mats. And so those stay there the entire day. That builds up from like 10.30 till 1.30. And then in the morning, I clean that up, which is fun, I guess. Um, the way you clean it up is you pick up all the mats and there's like, bits of burger and cheese and onions and you're like, you grab it with your hands, it's really disgusting. You put it on this cart, you take it over to this cleaning area and you have a power washer and it takes about a minute per one because you have to power wash each and every single one. You do the top, you flip it over, you do the bottom, you flip it back over just to one more time. And if you don't do it right, your manager could come by and say, you need to do this again after you set it all back up. It's like unbelievably stressful when you finish it all and your manager's like, hey, you're bad at this. Um, So if you can imagine something comparable to what Israel might have faced, their work was quadrupled. If you can imagine if my store manager came up to me and said, hey, actually, you don't get to use the power wash anymore. Here's a a sponge and a bucket. And they says, you have to do the same amount of work in the same amount of time. And if you don't, you're fired. Like how stressful would that be if you're in that situation? Like there's no way you're looking at this going, there's no way I can do this. I cannot meet these demands that are placed on me. Now, that's, that's work, and that's a hypothetical situation, but for Israel, that was reality. But it wasn't that they were going to get fired from being a slave. If anything, that's what they wanted. It was they were going to die. The reality for them is if they couldn't meet this quota, which they couldn't, they would die. That was if you were a slave and you couldn't do what your master was asking of you consistently, it was death. That was the punishment. And we know this. We know that this is reality because the, the t- Israelite taskmasters... The, the men who were over Israel's like, like workforce who reported to the Egyptians came to Moses and they said, you have made us a stink in Pharaoh's eyes and you've put a sword in his hand to kill us. In other words, we're gonna die and it's your fault. They come to Moses and they say, what we're doing, what you've done is causing us to die and it's all your fault. And if you're Moses in this situation, you've experienced great success with what God has asked you to do. You've seen God be faithful of what he told you he was going to do. And you get in the situation, and Moses we see is a man who is frustrated at the injustice on his people. We talked about that several weeks ago when Moses killed the Egyptian, the Egyptian taskmaster for beating one of his slaves. It was this idea that he had the right motivation or understanding in terms of righting and injustice, but the wrong outworkings of that. And so if Moses is this man who already has a heart for the injustice on his people, and he's sitting here and he's hearing his people tell him, what you're doing us is killing us. Can you imagine the, the heartbreak of Moses? Can you imagine the questioning when he was so sure of what God said he would do, and now he's in this position where he now is questioning, is God who he says he is? 
Is God going to do what he says he's going to do? And we see this really interesting phrase in verse 22, where Moses then turns to the Lord and he prays to him and he says this. Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you even send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Moses is in a position where he is questioning that questioning the reality that God is who he says he is. And God earlier has revealed to Moses that he is unchanging and what he said he's gonna do, he's gonna do. And so Moses, of all people, why would he question, right? He's seen God be faithful, but hardships and strife and heartbreak have revealed to him this moment where he is questioning that God is who God says he is. And I think that's really interesting because for many of us, At one point in your life, there will be a season in which you question that God is doing what he said he was going to do. Some of us have experienced unique calls in our life, not just the grand call to go and make disciples and love your neighbors and love other people, but some of us have experienced unique calls in which it's to go be a missionary in some place or to go do uh, work with your grandchildren or work with your friends. All those things we feel like God has called us to, but there are trials that get in the way and we question, is this what God has really called us to do? Because where I'm at right now is really difficult and it really seems like God is not the God he said he was. And this is the space that we enter in with Israel. And Israel at this moment are a people in the middle. They're people in the middle of what God said he's going to do and what God does. And I think there's a very relevant application for us because we as Christians are a people who also exist in the middle. We exist in the in-between time between what Jesus did on the cross and what Jesus will do when he comes back. And we exist in the middle, that timeline where we have God with us, but we're still eagerly awaiting and expecting God to do something. And in between that, there are hardships and strife and pain and things that come in and cause us to doubt that God is who he says he is. And there are two interesting reactions to, to this because the Israelite foreman would have known that God was gonna go and work through Moses. If all of the leadership had heard and affirmed what Moses was going to do, then they probably would have been communicated downward to the people that God is finally gonna rescue his people. And these guys, Moses and Aaron, are here, and God is gonna do something. And so they're waiting, and they experience pain and hardship, and they run to someone unique. They run to Pharaoh. We read that they come to Pharaoh, and they say, Pharaoh, why are you doing this? Can you, can you take this away from us? Can you stop? And Pharaoh says, no, you're lazy. You're lazy. I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing. They put their trust and their faith in the authority and power of Pharaoh, which actually is really ironic considering the person that Pharaoh is. In the story of the Bible, at this point, he is the worst character so far. There's this guy in Genesis named Lamech who, he's like a, a later cousin of Cain. And Lamech says something interesting. He says, he says he's like boasting, he says, Cain killed this guy, and that was his vengeance. He says, but I'm really proud because I've killed a bunch more people, and I'm really proud of it. And Lamech is like the epitome of this terrible person. And Pharaoh is worse than that guy. Pharaoh is worse than the guy that's bragging about how vengeful he is. Pharaoh is the guy that threw Israel's kids into the river, and they're the same people that these Israelite foremen run to and say, you have power and authority, can you fix this? And I think there's something off on that. And I think there's something that's a little bit revelatory for us. To see there are moments when we experience pain and grief and trials and we run to what's comforting, what we think has power and authority to provide the comfort that we want. And not all of those things are bad things that we run to. I think there's family that we run to for comfort. There's friends that we run to for support. Those aren't 
bad things, but the question is, what do you run to when you're, when you're facing these trials? If you were to examine your own life and look at the things that you run to or find security in, what are those things? Is it your finances? Is it your health? Is it your friendships, your relationships? Because eventually at some point, those, those have the ability to fail you. But God stands unique in Exodus to claiming that he does not change and that he is with his people. And so the Israelite foremen run to Pharaoh and it's, they, they miss it. And the encouragement for us today is to, to run to what we know, what we've seen in the past and seen in scripture to be faithful and to find comfort and security and trust that God will be who he said he will be. That is literally his name. One translation says, I will be who I will be. That is literally God's name. Do we trust that God is who he says he is? The other unique thing um, in terms of responses to this hardship is what Moses does. Now, it's always um, an interesting thing to, to look at a biblical character and say, be like Moses or be like David, because a lot of the biblical characters are incredibly flawed. And so the, the encouragement is not always be like this person, because they're not always the hero of the story. In fact, God's the hero of every story, and we should learn from that. But in this sense, Moses, I think, acts properly. He expresses extreme doubt at what God is doing, but rather than taking these doubts and saying, God, I don't get what you're doing, I don't understand why you're doing this, why did you even send me, and moving away from God, he moves towards God. He says, God, what is going on here? I thought you were this God. What are you doing? Why did you even send me? And the really interesting thing is that if you read further in chapter six, God answers him. And God answers him in a unique way. God never shames Moses for his questioning of, what God, of who he is. God doesn't say, Moses, why would you even ask me that? Haven't you seen what I've done? Don't you know me? That's not how God is. He doesn't shame Moses for being open and honest. And what we see here is one of the first accounts of lament in scripture, in which deep hardship and anguish are expressed towards God in a way that is appropriate. And I think for many of us, that is a skill we need to learn. Because if we don't learn how to lament properly, then we, we then retreat into ourselves and retreat from God and we don't allow space for God to listen to our grief and our anguish and answer us in the way that he answered Moses. And I, I would bet that there are many of you who at some point in your life in this room today experience a decent amount of hardship and pain. And the temptation is to always want to retreat, to question and say, God, what are you doing? But the encouragement of Moses is that we are to move towards God because God accepts that. And God welcomes that. He doesn't shame us for questioning who he is. In fact, he waits for that opportunity for him to say, look, I am who I said I am, and that is my name, and I will continue to be that way. There's, um, my wife does this thing that really drives me crazy. Um, she, she has this really bad habit of when she's reading books, she like peeks at the last chapter. And it like the other day, we were, she was reading this book and she'd read chapter one and two and I'd ask her about it and she'd be like, oh, this is great. And then she'd get to chapter four or five and I'd ask her about it. She's like, oh, I, it's fine, it's okay. Like, I was really worried about it, but I read ahead, so it's fine. I, I know it's gonna happen. I can get through this. And it drives me insane because I'm the type of person that when I read a book, I like to be able to let the story take me where it wants to take me. Like when you read a book, you like to feel what the, what the book has there for you and to understand what it's there. But she does this thing where she reads the end of the story so that she has the comfort and security to get through like the tension. She doesn't like reading, she doesn't like the tension. Like I think the story was about a girl and she had experienced hardship and she just wanted to know that it was gonna be okay so that she could keep reading. And while, that's, and while I think that's a little comical, I think that's very, very relevant for us. 
We have been given the story in which we can peek ahead and know that it will be okay. This is a story, we know that it'll be okay. God is who he says he is and what he's done in the past, he will continue to be the same God. And we, we know the story that one day God will come back and he will say enough, enough hardship, enough grief. This is not the way I designed this world. This is a result of sin and darkness and enough. But we like Israel live in the in-between. We live in that tension in which we have seen what God has done and we look forward to what God is doing and our comfort and our security is hope that it will be better. Now it's important to say that, that this doesn't minimize pain. Grief is grief, loss is loss, pain is pain that doesn't take it away. You can't slap this like sticker on this and say, well, just hope that it'll be better. Like that doesn't make pain not pain. I, I have a friend um, who in his junior year of college, his dad was diagnosed with cancer. And it was a pretty aggressive form of cancer. And um, at the end of his junior year, he was trying to figure out what to do after college. And his dad was looking like he was going to be doing better. He was kind of on an upturn in the battles of cancer. And so he's like, maybe I've got a few more years. I think what I want to do is go to China and teach English for a year. And so he, he decides, he signs up, he commits to going to China. And he's talking to the school over there. And he's, um, he's doing that. And then in, the senior, in senior year, his, his dad dies. And so his parents, his mom, his mom and his family are like, Sam, just go. Like, it's okay. Like, you can go. It's all right. And so he kind of reluctantly agrees. And I remember meeting with him a year after he gets back. And so Sam expresses immense grief and loss, questioning why God would do what he did, questioning what is going on in his life. And it was like so dark and depressing to sit and listen to someone. One of the hardest things I've ever had to do to sit with him in that moment and let him express his deep grief and frustration and so it almost like brought me to this question where I just asked him, I said, how do you feel about God? Like, what does this make you want to do in relation to God? Like, do you, do you even believe in him or want to follow him anymore? And he says, where else would I go? There is this deep sense that in life we will face hardship. But the conviction and the hope is that there is no other place to go for. Where else would we go? Who else is our hope in? This is, this is the story of Exodus. This is a question that the people of Israel will face over and over and over again. Is God who he says he is? In, as they enter the promised land, 10 of the 12 spies say we can't do this. Two of the spies say God said that we could. And the question is, do you, do you believe that God is who he says he is? It's not a band-aid to get you through some pain, but it's, it's a reminder, whatever you're going through, God, God has already told us the end of the story. And so as we move through, as we live and exist as people who live in the in-between time of what God has done and what God will do, we don't function as people who don't have hope. And that is the encouragement and the strength that we go forward with. Now, in just a moment, I wanna lead you guys through uh, a brief exercise in prayer. And so I'd ask you guys to, to close your eyes and um, I'll have a few questions for you. So maybe you find yourself in a situation in which you recognize that your hope and your faith and your trust is in something other than God. Would you ask God to reveal to you maybe what it is you are relying too heavily on? Would you ask God to reveal what you find security in if it's something other than him?
And if something came to mind, would you, would you confess to God that you have put your trust in that? And would you ask God to show you how you can put your trust in him? Maybe you're in this position where you're, you're a little bit like Moses, where you have trust in God. You've seen him work faithfully, but you're in a moment where whatever you feel like God has called you to do is very cloudy, and it is hard to see how God is who he said he is. Would you tell God what that is? Would you ask God to remind you of the hope that you have? Would you ask God to bring up things in your memory that make you believe that God is who he said he is? Maybe situations in your past. Would you ask God to strengthen you for future times? Father, we are incredibly grateful that you are who you say you are. You have revealed yourself as a God who is unchanging over and over again in scripture. But Lord, we recognize that there are moments in our life where we doubt that you are that God. Would you strengthen us, God, to be honest with you so that you can meet us in that pain? Thank you, God, that you are unchanging that we have a hope to look forward to and that you will do the things that you said you will do. It's in your name we pray, amen.